In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Can one faithfully bear witness without being a martyr? Etymologically, no. In Greek, the verb martyreo just means to bear witness. But what I'm asking is, if I want to live by faith, like our Hebrews reading says, is it going to kill me? Part of me, most of me, wants to scream, I hope not. In Flannery O'Connor's short story, A Temple of the Holy Ghost, the schoolgirl narrator reflects that she could never be a saint, but she thought she could be a martyr if they killed her quick. <laughs> I'm pessimistic about my chances at sainthood, too, but neither do I think I'm cut out for martyrdom, whether quick or slow. Our readings today, however, each of which speaks into and about a time of suffering, leave things a bit more complicated. And it's the answers they give to my martyrdom question that I want to explore this morning. As a point of entry, consider first an odd feature of the gospel passage. Jesus is speaking, and he says, but when you see the desolating sacrilege set up where it ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those in Judea flee to the mountains. What's odd here is the parenthetical, let the reader understand. Jesus is in the middle of a speech to his disciples, so presumably it's not him inserting a remark to the reader. It must be Mark then sticking this in there as a message to his audience. So what is the message? To understand it, we need to set the desolating sacrilege and the subsequent flight into the mountains in the context of Jesus's speech to his disciples and also in their historical context. In the story Mark is telling, Jesus has triumphantly entered Jerusalem and goes straight to the temple where, as you'll recall, he causes quite a disturbance. Despite this, his disciples are awed enough by the place to comment on the wonderful size of the stones it's built out of. To which Jesus replies, oh yeah? Soon enough, there won't be left here one stone upon another. Later, looking out over the city on the Mount of Olives, his disciples want to know when these things will be. And that's when Jesus launches into the speech our passage today appears in the middle of. It is full of warnings not to be led astray when various events take place. These warnings echo those of the prophets foretelling either the destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of the Babylonians, or the eventual judgment against Babylon when Israel is finally restored, Jesus would have expected his Jewish disciples to have heard these echoes in Ezekiel, Hosea, Isaiah, and elsewhere. The same is true of the desolating sacrilege phrase that Mark wants us especially to zero in on. 
These words appear in the book of Daniel, just a few verses prior to the passage we read today. They come toward the end of a long angelic prophecy foretelling everything that would happen from that time, around 536 BC, forward through the next four centuries. Among the events the prophecy foretells are Alexander the Great's conquest of the entire region, his premature death, the splitting of his empire among his generals, and years of fighting between their descendants. For the most part, the Jewish people who had returned from the Babylonian exile and rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem got along well with their new Greek rulers, the Seleucid dynasty. But for murky reasons, that situation changed abruptly in 168 BC when the Seleucid king, Antiochus IV, set up a statue of himself in the temple. Antiochus called himself Theos Epiphanes, or God Made Manifest, and apparently considered himself divine. Daniel writes about these events, Forces sent by him shall occupy and profane the temple. They shall abolish the regular burnt offering and set up the desolating sacrilege. He shall seduce with intrigue those who violate the covenant, but the people who are loyal to their God shall stand firm and take action. What sort of action? The historical answer to that question is written in the books of the Maccabees, in which Mattathias the priest laments the desecration of the temple, saying, See, our holy place, our beauty, and our glory have been laid waste. The Gentiles have profaned them. Why should we live any longer? Ordered by the king's officers to make sacrifices before the statue, Mattathias refuses, saying, I and my sons will not obey the king's words by turning aside from our religion to the right hand or to the left. In fact, when one of his fellow Jews does come forward to offer sacrifices, Mattathias charges up and kills him on the altar, then yells, Let everyone who is zealous for the law and supports the covenant come out with me. And it says, He and his sons fled to the mountains leaving all they had in the town. Mattathias and his sons start a campaign of guerrilla warfare against the Greeks, and eventually his son Judas Maccabeus recaptures and purifies the temple, the events still celebrated today during Hanukkah. Mattathias's descendants eventually become the Hasmonean dynasty of Jewish kings, whose line Herod eventually joined through a sketchy but strategic marriage. Nobody in the ancient world has a high opinion of Herod's moral character, but he was plenty ambitious. And after becoming king, he embarked on a colossal building program that involved an overhaul of the temple in Jerusalem. It was this program that set in place the enormous stone blocks 
still standing that we know as the Wailing Wall. Archaeologists still don't know exactly how his engineers managed to get them there. No wonder then that Jesus' disciples, simple Galilean fisher folk, some of them, marveled when they saw them. This brings us back to Jesus' warning. Soon enough, there won't be anything left of this, along with Mark's parenthetical, let the reader understand about the abomination of desolation. Mark's Jewish readership would have recognized at once the reference to the desecration of the temple by an occupying power, and understood Jesus' words that the same was about to happen again, but even worse, since this time nothing would survive. And with the exception of the temple's western wailing wall, this soon proved true. Jewish protests against the Roman occupation burst forth into full-scale warfare in 66 AD. The Roman Emperor Nero dispatched his general Vespasian to put down the revolt. Vespasian began to do so vigorously and brutally, but soon had to return to Rome to become emperor himself after Nero's death. So it was Vespasian's son Titus who completed the process, laying siege to Jerusalem in 70 AD. The Jewish historian Josephus describes the horrors that followed. Thousands of captive rebels crucified all around the city, while within starving holdouts resort to cannibalism. When Roman soldiers finally breached the temple walls, they set up their images within and offered sacrifices. The desolating sacrilege come again. And then, with the exception of that one wall, they destroyed everything so completely that Josephus says there was nothing left to make those that came thither believe that it had ever been inhabited. This was the end which Jerusalem came to, a city otherwise of great magnificence and fame among all mankind. Okay, so I've talked a bunch about history, you might have noticed. Here's why. Whatever else may be true of Jesus' words in our gospel passage today, an important part of their message centers on this event, the destruction of the temple. I won't say that Mark is necessarily foretelling this event, since we don't know exactly when his gospel was written. A traditional view is that it was written to Jews in Rome during Nero's persecutions in the late 60s AD, in which case our verses today would be predicting events that hadn't happened yet, but soon would. Maybe the Jewish revolt had begun, and its horrific end was already looming on the horizon. Maybe, on the other hand, Mark is writing after the destruction of the temple and knows the desolating sacrilege has revisited it. Either way, with this historical background in view, Jesus' message to his disciples and Mark's to his audience, including us, is both clear and striking. There is to be no misguided martyrdom 
in defense of the temple. In fact, what it looks like faithfully to follow God through these troubling events is to run for the hills. Nor, however, are we to do so only to form up a guerrilla resistance like the Maccabees had done with the expectation that God might lead us back to victory over our foreign oppressors. This time, it's different. Because just as the prophets had foretold God's thorough destruction in judgment of Babylon, so too Jesus is prophesying here that God will destroy Jerusalem herself because of her corruption. Here, Jerusalem is Babylon. Jesus himself is the true temple now, as he elsewhere tells his disciples, and he'll be raised again on the third day. The true nation of Israel, then, is his band of followers and disciples they'll make, including us as members of the church. I'm reminded of Joel's sermon a few weeks ago, in which he spoke of sitting among the shards of a broken self-image. How true this must have been for Jesus' disciples, marveling at the wonder that was Herod's temple, only to be told that this structure and the society that revolved around it has nothing to do with who they truly are. So, does this mean we're off the martyrdom hook as faithful witnesses to the gospel? Maybe, but I'm not so sure. If the traditional view I mentioned about Mark's date and audience is correct, then it was written by a follower of St. Peter's shortly after the time that Peter himself was martyred. The tradition has it that Peter started to leave Rome during Nero's persecutions, but was met on the Appian Way out of town by Christ himself. Where are you going, Lord? Peter says to him. To Rome, to be crucified again, Christ replies. And Peter takes that to mean that he himself must return to Rome, to continue as shepherd of his people there until his own eventual death by crucifixion. We are lucky enough ourselves not to live under an insane emperor bent on blaming us Christians for having burned his own city down. So too, evidently, were the recipients of the letter to the Hebrews possibly also addressed to Jewish Christians in Rome, but in the years just before Nero's persecution. Our passage today indicates that they have, indeed, already endured some significant sufferings for their faith, insults, imprisonment, loss of property. But in chapter 12, they're reminded that in their struggle against sin, they have not yet resisted to the point of death. Perhaps if the readers are indeed Roman Christians in the early 60s AD, resisting to the point of death is soon to come. One thing noteworthy about our reading today, however, is that it picks up with a dark warning about the consequences of failing to live faithfully. It is a fearful thing 
to fall into the hands of the living God. And this brings to mind a different sort of martyrdom that we may be called to. Perhaps we're lucky enough in our time and societal context not to have to worry about facing even the kinds of suffering the Hebrews had endured. Yet the author of the letter is warning them that there's a sort of spiritual death to be feared even more than biological death or suffering. It is a loss of our identity in Christ, who says, my soul takes no pleasure in anyone who shrinks back. And the thought that worries me is that while our time and societal context might not kill me biologically because I am a Christian, it might indeed kill me spiritually unless I am willing radically to break with it, finding my identity elsewhere. Unless I'm willing to die to the person our society would have me be, just as Jesus' disciples had to break with their self-image defined in terms of Herod's temple. Partly I worry this because although I think it's clearly part of today's gospel message that we don't derive our identity from our societal context, but rather from our status as members of Christ's body, we nevertheless do still derive our identity from the context of all creation. As members of the church, we are still creatures, and I worry about the extent to which our living as our time and societal context would have me do means killing creation itself. I have no easy solution or response to these worries, and I won't suggest one. I'll end just by noting one parting thought with which our readings today from Mark and Daniel both conclude, starting with Daniel. The traditional view is that Daniel was written by Daniel in the 6th century BC. Contemporary scholars think it more likely dates from the 2nd century, right around the time Antiochus was busy profaning the temple and Judas Maccabeus launching his guerrilla campaign. Either way, whether in the context of Persian domination or Greek, the author of Daniel is looking forward to a time of deliverance. Yet, when the angel addressing Daniel in our passage today is asked, how long shall it be until the end of these wonders? His response is cryptic. For a time, two times and half a time. Daniel says, I heard, but I couldn't understand. So I said, my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? The response this time, go your way, Daniel, for the words are to remain secret and sealed until the end of time. Happy are those who persevere, but you go your way and rest you shall rise for your reward at the end of days. It is as though the angel wants to say, Daniel, I've told you already what you need to know. Go your way and persevere in that knowledge, then rest until you receive your reward. And Jesus concludes our passage from Mark today in a similar vein. Be alert, Christ says. I have already told you everything. But Lord, I want to ask, can I faithfully bear witness without being a martyr?
Be alert, Christ says. I have already told you everything. Amen. Amen.